Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961 has gone down in history as one of the CIA's greatest failures. A failure that not only embroiled a new charismatic president, John F. Kennedy, but it also failed in its core objective, to oust Cuban leader Fidel Castro. Yet while we've all heard of the Bay of Pigs, what actually caused this invasion, this coup, to go so horribly wrong? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to find out, I've invited the excellent Jim Rasenberger onto the podcast. Jim is the author of The Brilliant Disaster, JFK, Castro, and America's doomed invasion of Cuba's Bay of Pigs. Together, we get to the root of how over 1,000 US-trained Cuban exiles were left to be killed or imprisoned by Castro's Cuban communists. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Nice to be here. Well, I'm excited to jump in and cover a topic that, well, surprisingly, we've neglected on the Warfare podcast. This is the Bay of Pigs, that disastrous CIA attempt to deploy over 1,000 American-trained Cubans to overthrow the communist revolutionary Fidel Castro. And I am surprised we haven't covered this because we did an entire CIA month without focusing in on the Bay of Pigs. So to rectify this historical imbalance, we've got you on the podcast, Jim. Maybe you could take us back to perhaps a little earlier than the Bay of Pigs itself in 61, back to 1959, to that moment that Fidel Castro takes power. How did he come to power in the first place? And why did the US see Fidel as a threat? Well, he came to power by overthrowing over a number of years. Batista had been the dictator of Cuba. And the American press had been covering him for at least seven years. You know, sometimes he was portrayed as a communist-leaning rogue, and sometimes he was portrayed as kind of a Robin Hero type figure that many Americans could get behind. So what's interesting about Castro is when he came to power, he came to power on January 1st of 1959. And at first, the Eisenhower administration wasn't sure what to make of him. Now, you know, you have to see all of this in the context of 1959 and American fears of communism. Communism was the great looming terror, that bogeyman that haunted the nightmares of Americans. So the big question immediately was, is this guy communist or not? 
Well, I begin my book in April of 1959, exactly two years before the beginning of the Bay of Pigs invasion, when Castro comes to visit the United States. And what's interesting about this visit is that he's really kind of greeted almost like the Beatles a couple years later. There are thousands of people wherever he goes uh, trying to get a chance to talk to him and touch him. And he's kind of this great charismatic figure. He stays in the United States for about 10 days, visits all over the country, and then he goes back to Cuba. Isn't this where he stays in Harlem? Because no, no, no that's one, later. No hotel, that's later. That later? Ah, yes, okay. that's after things have gone sour. This is when we're still in the honeymoon phase. Right, I see. And Richard Nixon, who's vice president at the time, meets Castro. And even Nixon says... I think he's probably okay. Everybody seems to think, you know, he's not a communist. The New York Times has an op-ed after he leaves and says he's clearly not a communist. He denies it. He's constantly asked, are you a communist? Have you ever been a communist? Will you ever be a communist? And he gives the right answer, no, no. He goes back home to Cuba and rather quickly starts behaving rather like a proto-communist. He does things like starts acquiring American property. He starts making anti-American speeches. He starts putting dissidents in jail. And most alarmingly, he starts accepting overtures from the Soviet Union. So very quickly, the Eisenhower administration and President Eisenhower himself decide that he is somebody to be worried about and that he's probably a communist. So within a year of him coming to power, the United States is already making plans to get rid of him. Okay, and let's just put this a bit more in the context of history. If we think about it, you know, this is a, a really tense time in terms of US relations with the Soviet Union. You, of course, a decade earlier have had the Soviet Union successfully testing their own atomic weapons. We've entered a bipolar world of nuclear tensions. And this has just grown and grown and grown under the Eisenhower administration to a point where you have thousands of nuclear warheads under the command of Strategic Air Command and General Curtis LeMay, all under this massive retaliation, hair-trigger policy that you could launch at the Soviet Union or the Sino-Soviet bloc, as it was called then, at a moment notice if the Soviet Union was to step out of line. And so the idea that you could have this Soviet stooge just off the coast of Florida, what is it, 90 miles to Cuba? I mean, this isn't something that the US can accept. It's not something the US can accept. Yes, in 1949, it wasn't just that the Soviets exploded an atomic bomb. It's also China became communist that same year. So it does appear to the Americans that there is this international communist conspiracy, as they called it, that's moving slowly across the world as a sort of like a virus. And that if you let it get close enough to you, it will overtake your own country. So yes, it's in the context of this, and I'm glad you point this out, that you have to understand the entire invasion and why, in retrospect, it can seem like these people were hysterical. What were they thinking? But in the context of the time, they really believed they had a great deal to fear. But the other side of it that you've alluded to is the fear of triggering a nuclear war at any time. So this is why you get into covert operations, and this really goes to the beginning of the CIA. It was meant to be the covert wing of the executive branch of the American government so that you could fight communism, but do it without causing a nuclear conflict with the Soviet Union. So you do it in these underhanded ways, Plausible deniability is the key term here. It's not that the other side doesn't know you're doing it, but as long as you can plausibly deny it, they don't have to respond in kind. The fear always with both Eisenhower and with Kennedy was getting into a game of tit for tat 
with the Soviet Union where they would be forced, Khrushchev would be forced to respond, then the American president would be forced to respond, and it would eventually lead to a great conflagration of nuclear weapons. And this was the, the fear they all had to work with. On the one hand, trying to keep the communists in check, and on the other hand, not start World War III. And they weren't wrong, were they, Jim? I mean, if we were to to skip forward in history a little bit here, so we're talking Bay of Pigs, we're talking 1961, by late 1962, we're stuck in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You almost do have that nuclear standoff. So if they can make the Bay of Pigs successful, then you could, in theory, avoid all of the tensions and the, and the near miss that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the CIA concoct this plan. Is this something that is dreamt up during the Eisenhower years and then given the rubber stamp once Kennedy comes to power? Or is it something that the Kennedy administration courts and comes up with themselves? It begins in the Eisenhower administration, but it evolves over time, changes quite a bit. Originally, the plan is to drop small units of Cuban exiles into the mountains sort of the way Castro came to power. He had a sort of a band of guerrilla fighters in the mountains. The idea is to have several bands of these. But over time, it developed into something more like a World War II style of amphibious invasion, where you're actually landing ships on a shore and unloading tanks and artillery and all this stuff. So by the time it lands on Kennedy's desk, now he's, he's only been in power for three months. He first, you know, he's briefed on it before he becomes president. But he comes into power and the CIA comes to him and says, here's the plan. And by the way, you need to execute immediately because Cuba is about to get MiG fighter jets from the Soviet Union. So your chance, the window of opportunity for doing this is very narrow. So act now. And Kennedy looks at this plan. He doesn't like it. But on the other hand, he has run against Nixon as an anti-communist. I mean, he, he actually painted... Richard Nixon, incredibly, as soft on communism. So when he comes into power, he, the last thing he can do is look soft on communism. So he can't just let this go. He wants, he calls it his albatross. He very much wants not to do it. But he knows the political consequences of not carrying through would be catastrophic. And furthermore, he, like everybody else, wants Castro gone for reasons we've already talked about. And if you can, in the first year of your administration, the first few months of your administration, if you can take out the threat that is Castro just off the shore, then that's a, a pretty good start to the Kennedy years. And, you know, this is someone who doesn't know his administration is going to come to a very premature end in just a couple of years' time. This is someone who is looking to build a dynasty and build that second term into the future. So what's the plan then? Because it doesn't sound like there's much plausible deniability here if you've got ships turning up off the shores of Cuba and you're sending in over a thousand troops that have been trained by the U.S.? That's very true. And everybody knew the United States was behind it long before it even happened. But the idea was you're using Cuban exiles to do this, that there are no American hands involved in this, no American fingerprints on this. Well, of course, that was nonsense. So the plan was to take this group of Cuban exiles, about 1,500 of them, and have them invade Cuba from the invasion was coming from a place called Happy Valley, the CIA caught it in Nicaragua. And the plan was to land them on the beaches of the Bahia de Cochinos, the Bay of Pigs, on the southern coast of Cuba, and then have them hold a beachhead. 
And it really wasn't that these 1,500 men were supposed to take over Cuba and keep pushing inland and somehow defeat Castro's army of 25,000. Rather, it was to hold a beachhead for a significant period of time, say a week, maybe two weeks. And this would allow you an opportunity to fly in a provisional government that the CIA had put together in Miami. You fly these guys into the beachhead, and then they declare themselves the rightful leaders of a free Cuba. And then you've got your foot in the door by this point. They can then plausibly invite in overt military assistance from the United States. So it doesn't look like an American invasion then. It looks like Cubans are inviting the United States to come in and assist them. So originally, it's an operation where it's a guerrilla-type operation where you're trying to infiltrate Cuba and then go out and, and try to change the minds of the Cuban people. But it really becomes this invasion idea, and I don't think Kennedy really ever understood what it was. The plan was get a beachhead, hold the beachhead, and then bring in a provisional government. That was really the best the plan could have been. And it actually wasn't as insane as it sounds because the, the Bay of Pigs was separated from the mainland by a huge swamp. And there were only three roads that came through the swamp. And the idea was that if you could hold these three roads, if you could make them chokeholds, it doesn't matter how many people Castro throws at you, he can't get through. But of course, the whole operation depends on one thing, which is Castro having no airplanes. And that's where the operation really fell apart. Well, I want to get into that in a minute, but I've been dumbstruck by the revelation that you've just made there. You know, I thought the Bay of Pigs was stage one. Stage one, like you said, is where you, you send in these Cuban exiles trained by the US military, you hold this bridgehead, you bring in a provisional government. I didn't know that stage two was the pretext for basically a war between the United States and Cuba. Did they have forces ready? Do we know if there's plans of, of what was meant to take place? How was this meant to unfold? They did. I mean, there were American aircraft, there were all sorts of US Navy ships just over the horizon. Now, I'm making some inferences here because in a way the plan was never really articulated very well, but it's really the only plausible plan there was. Because by the time the Bay of Pigs invasion happened, the original idea of going off into the mountains and infiltrating into Cuba was clearly no longer going to happen because the Bay of Pigs was nowhere near the mountains. And the Pentagon was involved in this from the very beginning, and there were aircraft carrier, the USS Essex was right over the horizon, and it had A-4 Skyhawks on it. The US Navy was prepared to invade Cuba. And it's clear this was really the only way this ever could have worked. Get a provisional government into Cuba and have them invite in overt forces. Because otherwise, you've got 1,400 men on a beach and sooner or later, they run out of ammunition and they run out of supplies. They needed assistance. And clearly, it was always going to be the U.S. military that was assisting them. Is there not also the hope that there might be a popular uprising? I know that in 59, when Castro takes power, he's pretty popular, right? But is there any hope that the people might see this government, this alternative to Castro, and rally behind them? Well, that had been the hope originally. But the problem is, by April of 1961, anyone who hates Castro is either in jail or in Miami. 
There are no anti-Castro Cubans who are free in Cuba at this point. So that was a ludicrous idea. It was never going to happen. Now, it, you know, a year earlier, that did seem plausible. By the time the invasion happens, that's no longer on the table, which is why the plan that I'm talking about is really the only plausible plan there was. We try to bring you cold, hard facts on Gone Medieval, but January is all about mysteries. Impossible riddles from medieval history that defy efforts to solve them. How did the presence of a mysterious saviour from the East turn into devastation? What secrets does a book written in an unknown code hide? Did kings and princes really die when history has assumed they did? I'm Matt Lewis, and in January, we'll see how close we can get to answering the unanswerable and ask how these mysteries might be solved in the future. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Okay, so 
the plan is in place, no matter how absolutely mad or ill-prepared it is, where does it all go wrong? Well, I mentioned the aircraft. So Castro has a small but effective air force of about 14 planes. And from the very beginning, the CIA knows that for this invasion to work, those planes have to be gone. They have to be gotten rid of. So they have a set of airstrikes that happens on April 15th of 1961. This is two days before the invasion. And eight B-26 bombers flown by Cuban exile pilots flies to Cuba and they go over three air bases and they bomb the air bases. And they do manage to take out about half of Castro's air force, leaving six or seven planes. Now, a follow-up set of strikes had been planned for the morning of April 17th to get rid of the rest of Castro's air force. But this is why Cuban exiles hate John Kennedy, because John Kennedy based on the reaction of, from the first set of airstrikes, which is essentially the entire world knows the United States is behind this, cancels the second set of airstrikes, leaving these six or seven planes intact. And the moment he does this, everyone in the CIA knows that the invasion's doomed because Castro's Air Force being taken out, he can come over the beaches and do exactly what he did. You see the consequences of it the morning of the invasion. Castro sends these planes over the beach. He says, don't worry about the men, hit the ships. And that's what they do. They very quickly sink two of the supply ships and the other four supply ships take off and head over the horizon. Therefore, leaving this brigade, 1,400 men, essentially stranded on the beaches. They have no supplies now. They have no medical supplies. They have no communications equipment. They have no food and they have no fresh water. And they know very quickly that they're in a tight spot. They actually fight pretty effectively at the beginning of it. And they do manage to hold these three roads. The problem is they run out of ammunition very quickly. So it's that canceling of the second round of airstrikes that was meant to take out the rest of Castro's Air Force that really was the beginning of the end for the invasion. And within 48 hours, it's all over. It makes you wonder what sort of signaling came from the Soviet Union once they found out that these airstrikes had taken place over Cuba because you've got Khrushchev in power. He's doing everything he can at this point to twist the screws on this young president. You've got to think back to this period. I mean, it seems like he has very little respect for Kennedy. And he even starts to do these overground tests over the Arctic of the Tsar bomber, the, the largest nuclear bomb ever detonated, all there to intimidate Kennedy. So do we have any insight as to whether or not it was some sort of Soviet indication that made Kennedy pull back? Was he told that this was a step too far? It was very explicit. Khrushchev promised on the 16th a conflagration. He promised nuclear war, essentially, if Kennedy continued. Now, Kennedy probably wasn't worried that Khrushchev was actually going to start a nuclear war. What he was really concerned about was West Berlin. Khrushchev had been making all sorts of threats about cutting off West Berlin from the rest of Europe. And Kennedy knew that if Khrushchev did this, he would have to respond for political reasons. And if he responded to West Berlin, then Khrushchev would respond. And you, then you get into this game of escalation. And this was Kennedy's worry, a constant worry. I mean, you, you have to sympathize for presidents in that Cold War era where they're constantly considering that any action they take can lead to escalation. 
So that's really his concern, and that is why he cancels this second round of airstrikes. He doesn't want to escalate with the Soviet Union. So why does no one in the CIA, who obviously can clearly see that the Cubans still have an air power capability, these Cuban exiles have absolutely no chance of victory, why don't they just cancel the whole mission? It was too late. The ships are on the way. Now, they did get word to these ships but it, it, there really was no chance to turn it back at this point for a number of reasons. Mainly that the ships were on the way and about to land when this decision went through. And to turn it back at this point, I, there were some discussions about it, but it was thought that the, the consequences of that would be 1,500 very angry Cuban exiles back in the United States talking about what a terrible President Kennedy was. Well, I'd rather be very angry than very much in a Cuban prison under Castro. Absolutely. You know, all the sort of unanswerable questions, there was a window of a couple hours where they could have stopped it. I suspect the CIA believed, and I'm speaking really about Richard Bissell, who was the deputy director of plans for the CIA. He believed that in the end, Kennedy would send in those A4 Skyhawks and help out. He just thought there's no way JFK would let this brigade get slaughtered on the beaches. He turned out to be wrong about that. But this was where the CIA, and particularly Bissell, turned their energies after those second round of airstrikes were canceled, was trying to get Kennedy to send in the A-4s. And he never did. It's one of those moments in history, isn't it, Jim? It's, it's one if- of those moments in history. And you, again, this is when you speak to some of these Cuban exiles who were in the brigade, some of them are still alive. This is why they hate John Kennedy, because not only did he cancel the second round of airstrikes, but he also refused to save them when he had A-4 Skyhawks right there that could have come in. He could clearly have saved them if he'd wanted to. But again, it goes back to the way he thought about this. What purpose is there to have a covert operation if you turn it into an overt American operation and you send in American fighter jets? escalating very quickly and probably requiring Khrushchev to respond in a very aggressive way. And this was Kennedy's fear. You have to be sympathetic with Kennedy's fear, but on the other hand, he left 1,400 men on the beaches essentially to die or be imprisoned. And so what did happen to these men? What sort of rates of losses are we talking about? Did Fidel try and slaughter them as best he could so he wouldn't have to deal with them later? Or was it more of a a PR exercise? Did he try and round as many up as he could and put them on public trial to really humiliate Kennedy? The latter. About 100 were killed. The rest fled into the swamps where Castro's troops picked them up over the next couple of days. And then he put them on public trial. Of course, for Castro, this was a huge victory. He, you know, he looked like the David who'd slain the Yankee Goliath. He played it for all it was worth. And it was a tremendous event in making him a more powerful leader doing exactly the opposite of what the American government wanted. Now, there's an interesting personal link for you here, isn't there, Jim? Because your dad, if I've got it correct, was a lawyer for the Kennedys. So how was he involved in this situation? How was he involved in the Bay of Pigs? Well, he was involved in a very minor way. He was a he was a private lawyer at the time, but he had done some advance work for John Kennedy. And after the invasion, there was a great attempt made to get these thousand or so Cuban exiles out of Cuban prisons and bring them to the United States. And Castro was willing to negotiate. At first, he wanted uh, he said he would do it. I think it was five hundred tractors. He would release them, but then it became about money and eventually about 
pharmaceuticals. The deal was for, I think the, the amount was $46, $50 million of American pharmaceuticals, he would release these prisoners. Now, my father was brought in to the Kennedy administration by Robert Kennedy. He and several other young D.C. attorneys were brought in to basically make this deal work. They didn't want it to be inside the Justice Department that this was worked out. They wanted it to be at an arm's length. So my father, but he actually went to the Justice Department every day, and it was not a very glamorous job. He was essentially calling pharmaceutical companies and saying, you know, will you give us some X-lax that we can send to the, the Cubans so we can get these prisoners released. But, it, you know, it's why I wrote the book. I was fascinated that my father had played a role in this, even a small role. I always found it fascinating as a kid, the Bay of Pigs. And so how successful was that negotiation? How many of the Cuban exiles did they manage to get home? They got them all home. It's a fairly dramatic story. I end the book with it. They came home on Christmas Eve. And a few days later, December 29th, this is 1962, Kennedy goes to the Orange Bowl in Miami and greets them and gives a speech. And, um, you know, so for a moment, Kennedy and the Cuban exiles are one big happy family. But that changes very quickly when they understand what John F. Kennedy had done to them. They became very angry and that. It's really remarkable. I went to Miami when I was writing the book and interviewed a bunch of these Cuban exiles. And the anger is visceral still. They are furious at John Kennedy. It's, it explains a lot of Florida politics to this day, where, you know, Florida in many ways looks like a blue state, but you always had this group of Cuban exiles who were far right. And they were far right because they hated John F. Kennedy. But what's interesting about these Cuban exiles is that, you know, none of them had been back home to Cuba in, in 50 years when I interviewed them. And they didn't know a single soul in Cuba anymore, but they still had this deep attachment to Cuba. And they especially had this extraordinary memory of the events of the invasion, those three days that changed their lives. And they could recite it hour by hour, minute by minute, how everything played out. Well, Jim, you have had the historian's dream. You're able to go there and talk to the people who conducted this mission. And then you can, well, you can soak up their anger. And you've mentioned it a few times. So I can only imagine how palpable it must have been sitting across from them down in Florida and hearing their side of the history. Jim, thank you so much for taking us through some of the lesser known aspects of the Bay of Pigs. You've got to tell us what's the name of your book and where can we buy it? The book is The Brilliant Disaster, and you can get it on Amazon.com or any independent bookstore. And we'll put a link in our show notes. Jim, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.